This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Off the Menu with Dara Moskowitz-Grumdahl, the Twin Cities leading food critic and senior editor of Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine. Off the Menu is all about food in the restaurant, at the market, and on your table. Now, here's Dara on News Talk 830 WCCO. I am back. I spent a week in Nashville. I ate all the biscuits that weren't nailed to the ground. That was a good time. I'll tell you what, world. I now have a few opinions about biscuits. Watch out. I'm bringing them everywhere I go. I also... Uh, want to know what you are cooking because I am very interested. What are you up to? What is the cooking that you are doing? Text me, 81807. And if you know what farm it came from, if you know where your food was raised, I want to know that too. That's a bonus. That's a You get bonus points. I sprinkle them down upon you from afar because uh, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about actual real farms among us. You ever seen any? Well, Brian DeVore has. He works at the Land Stewardship Project. He has a new book, Wildly Successful Farming. It's about uh, sustainability, uh, the new agricultural land ethic, and it's roughly about farmers all around who are balancing ecological health of the land and financially viable farming. I know this is of great interest to all of us at this point because – How are we going to live without clean water? How are we going to live without birds? I don't want to. A lot of people are also thinking that. They're figuring it out. And Brian, like, has all of the proof. He brought the proof to us in the form of a book. All right, so let's just get into it. you have any questions also about sustainable land use and farming, like how to make a farm work and also how to make the rest of it work, keep the planet going, uh, text us, 81807. All right. Brian DeVore, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dara. All right. So all the things. First of all, what does Land Stewardship Project do for people that don't know? Well, we're a uh, nonprofit organization. We work here in the upper Midwest. We're based out of Minnesota. And we work with farmers uh, and try to connect them with other folks who are very interested in stewardship of the land. We uh, have... We work on uh, policy programs and trying to promote sustainable agriculture and getting uh, research uh, at our land-grant universities to support this kind of agriculture and also work on the state and federal level to promote sustainable policy. We also have a local foods, kind of a community-based foods program that works on promoting things like community-supported agriculture and uh, uh, promotion of kind of getting farmers rewarded for the practices that they're using. Uh, we have a beginning farmer program that uh, trains uh, – uh, it's called Farm Beginnings, and it trains kind of the next generation of sustainable farmers out there. And then our latest program is a soil health program. There's a lot of excitement right now around the soil health movement and using farming to build carbon in the soil and uh, 
sequester greenhouse gases, um, clean up our water, provide wildlife habitat, and there's been a lot of innovation in that area. Okay, so in a, in a roughly speaking, sustainable farming means that if I'm farming it now, someone will be able to drink the, you know, still drink the water from that land, still raise food on that land, like it'll still be productive and existent in, you know, 150 years. Like that's the rough idea, right? Yeah, that is the rough idea. And I tell you, something that's kind of been in this area that people have been talking about more is calling it regenerative agriculture rather than sustainable agriculture, which I think is a a good uh, uh, move in that direction in that not just trying to sustain the same old thing, but trying to actually make that land better and leave it better than you found it and, and make it so you it can be kind of self-sustaining and regenerative into the future. Yeah, I think people have heard me tell this anecdote before, but it, I always go back to this. I was in Bordeaux once because I was very fancy, and I was at this extremely well-regarded, world-famous vineyard uh, called Lynchbage, and the soil was a chemical wasteland <laughs> of death. I mean, it was the worst. It was frightening. It was a, a just a thin silt that had just so many chemicals poured on it with the idea that that was going to make uh, the soil better. And they, the vines were dying. The quality of the wine was going down. The whole thing was just a, a catastrophe. And then there would be these biodynamic farms, you know, or vineyards rather, you know, three acres down, and they were vital. The soil was alive. There were like songbirds. I mean, it was a total like snow white moment. And they, the wine that was coming from these biodynamic vineyards was alive, more highly prized, going up in value. Uh, You know, and it was just like a plot of life versus a plot of death. And you, I just stood there looking at the two of them. I was like, oh, you know, we have really got to make some choices because a lot of people like me, City slickers, end of the road. We're not. We don't see the soil that things come from. We don't. We're not making choices like that because we don't really have the opportunity to. And now that I'm just ranting, I find it very annoying for the consumer, the end consumer, to be responsible for things that we have no way to be responsible for. Anyway, but that's you're in that mix trying to edge things over. Yeah, and I think that's that's a point I try to make in the book, Wildly Successful Farming, is that uh, if people care about clean water, they want to see wildlife, they want to see uh, – get us uh, – help us uh, in some way get a handle on this climate change catastrophe that is around the corner. Uh, if they want to see these benefits, these kind of public goods come about – um, yeah, it's one thing to support certain policies and, and regulations and uh, uh, subsidies, that type of thing. But really to get at it, especially here in the Midwest where the majority of land is farmed, is in private agricultural hands, we need to find a way both through policy and through the marketplace to support this kind of wildly successful farming and, and these people who I call uh, agricultural ecological agrarians, these people who really combine ecology and agriculture. And I think that's where the local food movement can play a really important role. And I've seen examples of this where these farmers have been able to really be financially viable uh, because they are able to get rewarded financially for taking this extra uh, effort to protect the environment and to make it better, not just to sustain it, but to really make it better. All right. So give me a for instance. Your book is, is packed with them. I, I'm going to let you pick. Give me an example of a farm 
that made some choices to be, you know, to have more wildlife, to do something, and then it worked out great for them. I got a really good example. One of my favorite examples is it's uh, Loretta and Martin Jouse who farm in Sibley County here in Minnesota. So this far- this book covers farms in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Indiana, Iowa, uh, kind of throughout the Midwest. But th- this example is in Sibley County, just uh, west of here. They have uh, both have degrees in wildlife biology, but decided that the way they could improve the landscape was through farming. They have used a combination of cover cropping, diverse rotations, uh, managed rotational grazing of their dairy herd, um, and uh, putting in shelter belts to to kind of attract uh, uh, positive, I guess, beneficial insects, that kind of thing, to really build that ecology and make it a working ecosystem on their farm. And one specific example is a few years ago, there was a huge grasshopper outbreak in their area. And all their neighboring farmers were working day and night spraying super toxic chemicals in the environment to try to control these grasshoppers. And expensive. I always think that we have to say that those inputs are not cheap. Exactly, exactly. And so they see it, the Jouses see this as an investment when they build their ecosystem. And as a result, they had they had some small grains that they were driving uh, around their farm one day and they realized they were pretty much untouched by the grasshoppers, where all, whereas their neighbors, their crops were decimated. And the, the, the result or the, the, the reason for this was they had built the soil ecology, the soil biology, to such a high level that the sugar content of these small grains were so high that when the grasshoppers started feeding on them, they actually got intoxicated. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said, they, they died happy, but they, it was a really prime example of starting literally beneath the feet at the core of what agriculture is all about, building that ecosystem from the ground up and they came out and their neighbors noticed this kind of thing. They, they noticed that they were not having to spend, like you said, spend money on toxins and exposing the environment to these toxins. And, and yourselves. I mean, we, we don't talk about that enough, I think. We don't talk about the, you know, who is bearing the brunt of the, uh, the pesticide loads in the fields. Oh, it's the farmers and their kids and their families. Exactly. They don't want to be exposed to this either. I mean, and that's where I think it's exciting. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was to show these examples that it is – these aren't just uh, – uh, hippie weed huggers, as some people would, would call them. <laughs> These are people who are in the community and they're making a go of it. All right. So give me another example. A water quality is of, you know, every, a f- top of mind for I think everybody at this point. I mean, I, I can't think of anything more devastating. Well, I can, but cause I have a rich imagination. But a devastating event in a life would be you're on this farm and all of a sudden your water's unusable. Mm-hmm. Like how I, I, I find it unbelievable. It's happening with uh, nitrate. Um, you know, p- poisoning in a, in a bunch of farms. So t- let's talk about that. We'll talk about water protection. Yeah, there's a really good example. Um, and this was research that I was exposed to when I went down to Iowa a few years ago, and now it's spread out onto farms throughout the Midwest. They had, uh, uh, there at Iowa State University, they had uh, planted in uh, corn and soybean fields. They had uh, set aside 10% of each field to Tall grass prairie, which I don't know if, if your listeners are familiar with this, but you know, well over ninety percent of areas like where we're sitting right now were covered in tall grass prairie at one time. That's all been plowed up 
we've lost all that carbon and all that uh, habitat. Yeah, it was a low rainforest. Yeah, my understanding. yeah, yeah. Basically, there's yeah. so much going on. So there's always been attempts to try to bring that some of that back, but we have to gra- raise food here. You know, the 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 economy and the, the situation has changed. So this was a way to try to combine some aspects of tall grass prairie with productive uh, crop production. What they found was that that tall grass prairie, if they put it in strategic parts of the fields, would actually reduce runoff and contamination by well over 90 percent. And the scientists were – they knew that there were going to be some results of, the, of putting in that tall grass prairie because those deep roots – Soak that up. They reduce the runoff, and and uh, you know, as an aside, they also provide pollinator habitat and bird habitat. But they did not. Re- they didn't think it would be ninety percent, and and in some cases they were to get they got a reduction of ninety five percent. That also reduced erosion, which is another big water quality issue. So as a result of that, there's farmers now who are planting these tall grass prairies and they're saying, yeah, I can – There's I got some land where I – you know, 10 percent of it I can set aside into a tall grass prairie system. In some cases, they're actually fencing that off and bringing cattle in and rotationally grazing that. And so they're getting some economic benefit out of it. But the the it's – like I said, they're also getting pollinators, which is very important to agriculture. You know, every third bite – of food that we take is a res, is a result of pollinator activity, so that's very important. So I think that's a really good example of kind of a a compromise where you're still very being very productive on that farmland. You're getting economic use out of it. You're producing food, but you're also getting those ecological services. And I, I find that really exciting that we can we're not going to have tall grass prairie covering the Midwest. Uh, you know, people have to live here and make a living here, but we can kind of integrate some aspects of, of these ecological systems back into our farming systems, I think. Okay. So we're going to take a little break here. I'm talking to Brian DeVore, who has a, a new book, Wildly Successful Farming. I, I think this is all really important. I think a lot of people, you know, you think about what would it cost me to lose the potable water on my land? It costs you everything. You know, so, so we'll talk a little bit more about how a city slicker and consumers can can kind of get involved in this uh, when we get back. But uh, right now we're going to take a little break. And I've been talking to Brian DeVore with Wildly Successful Farming. Dara here, Minneapolis-St. Paul Magazine and... This here show off the menu, which I love to bring you. We have fun. We, we do good. We learn about things. Right now, I've been talking to Brian DeVore from the Land Stewardship Project. Uh, we're talking about wildly successful farming. His book, uh, the subtitle is Sustainability and the New Agricultural Land Ethic. What I like about this book is you went out there and you, you just have like proof of concept after proof of concept. Just bang, bang, bang. People want to read. Like, can it be done? Uh, and I know that people are just just out there cooking and saying, but what can I do, Brian DeVore? What can I personally do because I work in an office cube and I don't have a farm? So, or, you know, so th- let's let's give something to the people, the people in their kitchens. What are the options for people who don't have farms? How can we kind of su- su- support a more integrated farm universe with cleaner, for cleaner water, you know, more birds, more pollinators for everybody? Well, you know, the subtitle talks about the land ethic, and I really, truly believe, and the land ethic comes from a concept that uh, Aldo Leopold came up with uh, many years ago, but I really believe that 
you don't have to own land. You don't have to farm land to have a land ethic. Uh, and oh, that's interesting. So yeah. I can have a land ethic even though I just stand in here in my city boots. Yes, and I, <laughs> and I think you can practice it three times a day. You know, with, with your food choices. So there's a couple of ways. One is through policy. We need to be supporting policy that promotes because the the situation we're in right now with this industrial ag landscape is not by accident. It came about because of policy that promoted planting a couple of crops, corn and soybeans here in the Midwest, and nothing else. And so, you know, we do have some bright lights there. The the, the federal farm bill, which was just renewed, uh, it was renewed every five years. It was just renewed recently does have a program in there called the Conservation Stewardship Program. And because of work by the on the part of the Land Stewardship Project and some other groups, we were able to get it renewed. Minnesota is the number one user of this program, and farmers rewarded for putting in place things like manage rotational grazing of livestock, cover crops, uh, diverse rotations that build soil health, that kind of thing. So that's a really positive thing, and we really need to support uh, whenever, you know, nobody pays attention to the farm bill, but you should. I do. I pay attention <laughs> to the farm bill. I make people. Yeah. So that's, that's just a really good example, I think. Market-wise, uh, you know, we've got the organic uh, uh, certification program. That's a really good way for people to reward farmers. You have to be, unfortunately, these days more watchful than ever because there has been some situations where, those rules have been uh, kind of people have used loopholes to get around those and they aren't maybe doing some of the stuff they should be doing on the land according to those rules. Yeah, so, so the, some of the big box uh, some of the big box stores will have kind of I don't know, greenwashed organics. Yeah, so yeah. It'll be from a weird Colorado dairy and it's not it's not good. So it's, I always say it's better to know your farmer here if you can get eyeballs on the land than it is to you know, get organic certified stuff from Costco. Exactly. And, and you know, we that is we are very lucky here. We have a lot of food co-ops where you can and farmers markets. And it's a great way to support local agriculture. The food co-ops have really come along in the past few years and are sourcing locally as much as possible. Which Yeah. Is and really I love important. that. I think that's just, I'm just outsourcing that. I walk in and I see the conventional apples in the co-op and I think, I know what that is. That's somebody who's transitioning to organics, and the co-op people have taken care of this for me. I don't have to think about it. All right, we actually have a call. Kara in Waverly has a question for you, Mr. Brian DeVore. Hi, Brian. Um, I live in Wright County, and I'm not a farmer, but we have 65 acres, um, and we have a mile of the Crow River running through it. And we are looking to... um, it's a beautiful, beautiful property. It's, it is um, surrounded in some sense on two sides by farms. But we're looking to restore the land, help with the Mile of the Crow. It's the largest um, um, part of the Crow and sits by Humphrey Aarons Park. And we're just looking at a lot of property. We also own kind of a private island across the river of 40 acres, lots of wildlife, but it was a it was a hobby farm before, and we don't want to be a farmer. We just want to restore the land and also do some organic gardens for the food shelves. And I'm wondering, first, what would you suggest as far as I, the prairie grasses? Like we have 20 acres we could put into prairie grass. Would that be a reasonable thing to think about? Uh, yes, it is. I you know I'll warn you it's uh, 
it can be a, at least a three-year process before you see that kind of prairie come about the way you want it to, to be. And so, it, you know, it, it'll take some patience. I would recommend contacting your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office. That's a USDA agency. And they have technicians there that can help you uh, figure out what kind of plantings would fit with your soil, that type of thing. They can also help you source the seed. The seed can be quite expensive, but once you get it established, it kind of takes care of itself. So that, that would be a, good, a really good way to start. And if you're looking for farmers who may be willing to farm it in a way that would kind of help work with that ecosystem and, and, and do that in a way that you, you really want it to see it kind of stewarded in a good way, you could uh, go to landstewardshipproject.org and check out our farmland clearinghouse, which is a kind of an exchange where there's farmers on there who post that they're willing to do this kind of thing. And then there's landowners such as yourself who can post information and uh, and kind of say, this is what I'm looking for. Yeah, that's fantastic that you're thinking about this, Kara. I really, I really appreciate it. Uh, our rivers in Minnesota, when I look at the St. Croix and think about how many people over generations have worked to make it that beautiful, I am just so grateful. Um, let me ask you about this. I know some people do, uh, they leave their land to a, a conservation trust. Yes, there is. Here in Minnesota, there's the Minnesota Land Trust, and that is uh, – it's a way for people to make sure that uh, long after they're gone, it's going to be taken care of in a certain way. And, yeah, I'd encourage people to check that out. It's it's a group that actually Land Stewardship Project helped get, start year, get started years ago, and it's kind of spun off on its own. Um, and I do know some farmers who are using that now. They're using these kind of regenerative systems that I talk about, and they want to make sure that, that it stays that way you know, long after they're gone. It's not – uh, taken over by a factory farm or that type of thing. So they have gotten easements through the, uh, the Minnesota Land Trust. And it, it is one way to, to to just kind of make sure that all that work you put into it doesn't go to waste down the line. Yeah, well, Kara, thank you so much for calling in. Um, I oh, I don't know if we should talk about this, but I know that there's a, there's a growing movement in Minnesota of people who – feel sort of spiritually that we are entrusted with the species of the planet. We are entrusted with this beautiful land. We're entrusted with all of the, God, the gifts from God. And it is, uh, you know, that we re- it is our responsibility to keep it going, to not mess it up. You know, um, are, are you hearing you hear from farmers like that, too? Right. Yeah. These far a lot of these farmers that I profiled in this book really came at agriculture through the lens of that land ethic and that idea that they really put the land first. And if they take care of the land, everything else will kind of take care of itself kind of idea. So they really did. And it is almost a spiritual view that they have of that land. And I think what's most exciting is some of the younger people that I interviewed who some of them didn't have any much of a farming background. But they had gone to school, maybe gotten a degree in wildlife biology or restoration ecology, that type of thing. And then because of all these advances that we've had in sustainable agriculture and regenerative agriculture, they realize, you know what, I don't have to go work for a natural resources agency or an environmental group to uh, have a positive impact on the land. I can actually farm and produce food and produce an income and have a positive impact on the land. So they're, they they really do approach it through that lens of kind of looking at uh, how is can this be a working ecosystem first, and then uh, looking at the kind of farming aspect of, 
of a second and really kind of it, it's really cool to see when that works out that they you know they are in some ways giving up a little bit of a control to to kind of nature but uh i would say that they're in a better situation and uh not as vulnerable than if they were giving up control to you know big corporations that are going to provide them uh, chemical inputs and keep them dependent on those systems for the rest of their lives. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of nature. You know, One of the things that we haven't had time to get to is a very involved book, and so there's a lot that we won't get to. But uh, nature also created some uh, kill-and-destroy predators to go after the things that eat pests, I mean, that eat uh, crops. So wasps and things like that who just live around, well, they are very happy to go and eat uh, invasive pests. So if you don't have a place for them to live, they can't come do your dirty work for you. Yeah, and I think one of the most exciting things that I've found just in recently uh, as I wrapped up the book and and talking to different people is we have seen – so these people that I write about, I kind of call them the hardcore uh, uh, ecological agrarians. They're really into this. This is the only way they would ever farm no matter what the economic situation was. What I'm seeing is is at workshops and field days – where we're looking at some of these practices that the Land Stewardship Project and other groups have put on, we're seeing more and more quote-unquote conventional farmers show up to kind of tap the knowledge of these uh, ecological agrarians because they're seeing their systems collapse. They're seeing the the systems that they thought were going to be sustainable uh, long into the future, not sustainable anymore. Part of it is because of climate change. Part of it is because, for example, the no-till system, which is a great system for conserving soil, is starting to not do what it should be doing. It, it's it's it, because it's so chemically intensive and is relies so much on heavy equipment that soil system is starting to collapse. So they're going and they're asking some of these kind of ecological farmers, well, what soil health practices are using? What rotations are using? And I think that's where we can have some of the biggest wide-scale benefit where we see thousands of acres that maybe isn't going to be the most wildly successful farming in every aspect, but it's going to adapt some of these practices. Maybe it's going to have a few uh, acres of tall grass prairie or it's going to have some wildlife habitat in there, but it's going to start integrating over time these these practices that really do kind of make have this wide scale uh, uh, effect, and we're gonna and one example I think where that could have a real impact is on water quality because if we can get that landscape really, uh, I guess more uh, hydrologically healthy, uh, we're going to see results. We're going to see cleaner rivers and, and cleaner lakes, and and it's it's going to be more of that wide scale basis. Because I'll be frank, a lot of these farmers I'm talking about that I'm writing about, they're they're very much in the minority. But I think that they can have an outsized impact. And I'm seeing more and more conventional farmers who are willing to take advice from them and borrow ideas from them. And some of these farms are quite big. They're farming a couple thousand acres. So I think anytime we can see some of those ideas kind of get inoculated into those systems, that'd be great. Well, if you want to find out more about all of this, you can... Get Brian DeVore's book, Wildly Successful Farming. You can go on January 17th to Majors and Quinn and see him read. He's going to be reading in the bookshop. He'll be there to answer questions. I think this whole DIY uh, conservation, very appealing. I like the idea of it, the idea that you can kind of start tinkering on your own farm and, you know, 
uh, start making the the world a better place. I mean, one of the things that's so appealing about the you know besides that you're having a land ethic, you're helping the world, you're helping yourself. Uh, it, it self you know it, it they, once you get a healthy population of say predators out there to eat your bad bugs, they just keep coming. You don't have to pay them. They're just like their own money in the bank. So take that weed killer vendors. You can. <laughs> Yeah, I'll keep my money. All right. So more of this from Brian DeVore in his book. Brian, thank you so much for coming in the show. Thank you very much. It was great. All right. We come back. I am going to be talking to Scott Foster of Bloomington's Hazelwood Food and Drink. He is doing a whole bunch of good stuff for the for Taste of the NFL and the Kick Hunger Challenge. And we will hear about that when we come back. Dara here. Doesn't that make you feel good? People are figuring out how to have more wildlife. I, I hope that we look back, you know, that those, do you see those numbers that came out this, this year about how we've lost like 60% of wildlife in the last uh, 40 years? I just, my heart broke. I, I hope we pull ourselves out of this ditch and that, uh, and that we all have a nice dinner together. That's my hope for us. I, I don't know. It just takes each one of us. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? Okay, so here who's who's on the phone today and is not eating an elephant. That would be Scott Foster of Bloomington's Hazelwood Food and Drink. He's been doing some innovative work for Taste of the NFL. You know what Taste of the NFL is. That's a great organization founded by our own Wayne Kostrowski that's been raising millions of dollars to donate to local food banks all around the country. Well, we're always trying to think of a different way to do things. And Scott Foster, he's a chef at the new, newish Hazelwood Food and Drink down in Bloomington near the Mall of America. And he has had some ideas. And I do love, I do love thinking outside the box. Scott Foster, welcome to the show. Hi, Daryl. Thank you for having me. So tell everybody, you've you've got some fresh ideas bringing into the hunger to our, our great effort here to fight hunger. Well, you know, Wayne called me, and I worked for him years and years ago, and I was very honored he called for our company, Nova Restaurant Group, and Hazelwood Food and Drink in Bloomington is one of our newest spots. Well, it's about a year old. So we're going to be coming up with some really cool ideas with the general managers and chefs for all of our locations, actually. Oh. And we're going to keep, yeah, we have seven restaurants. So um, we're going to be coming up with different ways to raise money for it. Not only are we going to try to pick an item and then, like a lot of people do, take a portion of the sale and donate it, but I think we're going to try to get the guests involved cable side and actually kind of work them a little bit there and try to give them a little extra money as well. Then log it through the POS and track it and get some checks written. That's great because not everybody, you know, works it out to make it to one of the the very cool events, but, you know, life – Life comes up, you got events, you got your own travels, you can't always make it. And this this seems like a really good idea. Yeah, you know, Wayne, as you know, he's been an innovator on fundraising and philanthropy and the James Beard. I mean, he's phenomenal. I opened the original Tejas with him in 1987, him and Mark Haugen. So we have a long history. Well, are you going to give us the secret blue breadstick recipe, the corn stick recipe? (laughs) Well, I I didn't have that recipe called Tim Anderson. But um, no, it was a fabulous time in my career. So, oh, that was a famous, a legendary restaurant. I only, I was a little bitty thing right out of college. I did not have any money to go there. I wish I did in retrospect. But uh, so, tell for people that don't know, you know, what are you doing down at Hazelwood? You've got a whole huge uh, array of options. Yeah, you know, Hazelwood again is our latest restaurant. It's a little over a year old. 
being the location that we're at, we really tried to, you know, whenever I write menus, and I've been around a little bit, we try to give people a little bit of something so that you're talking about, let's go to Hazelwood. What do you got? Well, I want a steak. Well, I want a healthy bowl. Okay, let's go. You know, we got everything. We got a pizza oven. We got rotisserie. Um, so we really got a broad range, and it's working really well. The community has embraced us, travelers, Mall of America people walking across the street. We're not in the mall. We're right across the street. So it's a concept that's working really well for us. And um, going back in 99, when you just got to town and City Pages, remember when you were riding? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, you I had wrote a bicycle. A piece. <laughs> you, wrote a, you wrote a piece on us when uh, to help start Redstone as a partner in Shaw 15. So, oh, you uh, did? Yeah, going way back, you and I. Oh, I didn't realize that. So that was a that's the rotisserie that sparked a thousand football players to go on fancy yeah. dates. Right? Um, that was, I mean, that rotisserie was just like a a carnival. There's so much going on on that thing at all times. Well, I appreciate it very much. We've kept the recipe and shared it. So. Oh, you have. Oh, yeah, the whole way. I own the recipe, and then I shared it with them. So it's a great time, and we've been doing a lot in the community and opening restaurants. And Nova Restaurant Group, you know, we kind of just move along and open stores and quietly take care of people, and we've been growing. we got three stores in Rochester. So all the restaurants combined to be able to join with Wayne and uh, through the taste of NFL, kick the hunger challenge. It's an honor that Wayne called me and asked me, and the team's excited. So it's kind of a secret is that like a secret part of your life? Uh, you know, you've just been you've been growing this restaurant, uh, little empire, your Nova Group, but at the same time, you've just been quietly raising money for hunger charities the whole time. You know, we do a lot of philanthropy. We haven't been involved in this every single year. Uh, way back in the day, we certainly did. When I was still a day to day chef, I did a few of them um, with the Vikings and et cetera. But uh, we do a tremendous amount of philanthropy. Uh, especially in Rochester and up here in the local community. We keep it more local. Tavern 4 and 5, we support all the sports teams, Tonka Bay, Hazelwood. Um, so all the restaurants in Rochester, a lot of uh, male support. We have three of them down there, like, like I said. So it's uh, we yeah, do a lot of philanthropy, and we're very proud of it. you got to give back. We do a lot of volume, a lot of guests come and see us. God bless all of them. So you have to give back. Yeah. All right. Well, you keep us posted. I want to know what you're doing. It's, uh, you know, it's there's so much hunger in this community. I, I think oh. people are starting to really be more aware of it. But in Minnesota, you know, something like one in six people are struggling with hunger. It's a it's a it's just astonishing. And so many of them are children. Yeah. And I really I thank you for doing the good work that you are doing. Well, the team's excited. We're going to pull it together and do the best we can. All right, well, let's keep in touch. I want to hear all about it. And Scott Foster, uh, congrats on what you're doing at Hazelwood Food and Drink. It is a success. So thank you, sir. All right, thanks, Sarah. Have a great day. Oh, thank you, thank you. All right, so now is the time of the show where we will get to uh, the Ask Me Anything and the, the, the our text line. The text line is uh, a bunch of, bunch of good questions. Um i got a good one uh, or in comments. Uh, Mr. DeBoer is speaking of how my Scandinavian ancestors farmed, both in Sweden and here in the U.S. Um, I, I think that is true. That is, you know, we're really it's, – it's that thing in life where you get back to how things were. Um, I was in the south this week, and so I went to a Waffle House. I'd actually never been to one in my whole life, and – 
They had Wonder Bread. <laughs> I hadn't seen Wonder Bread in so long. I think it's not around up here anymore or something. And, you know, you just it's like a, a time capsule because everyone in my world is very interested in making our own bread. You know, local milling, local locally raised grains, having a sourdough starter, all of these things. And that is how they made bread in medieval Europe. You know, it's how your great grandparents made things. And then there was this, uh, you know, great innovation where you could just buy a loaf of bread and it would stay fresh for 16 months. And it would, uh, you know, have the, the texture of a of a fine piece of packing material and you know and then we that seemed like the greatest thing and then we got past that and everybody said no that is not the greatest thing we don't like that anymore there's a lot of that in culture you kind of try new things and then you go backwards to to maybe how it was and what it used to be these were you know there there are farms that have been farmed for a thousand years and you couldn't just use them up you can't just use them up and throw them away And, and so your scandinavian ancestors my uh poly mess of a European, all those ancestors in my great past. Uh, and I got a question. Did you mention no-till farming? Uh, came to the show late. It's so good for the soil and healthy soil equals more nutrient-dense food. That is true. Uh, we did talk a little bit about no-till. Uh, there's different kinds of no-till. There's kind of this no-till with a lot of inputs, you know, a lot of pesticides, herbicides, and there's no-till uh, just straight up no tilling. Um, I'm very interested in all of that, all the the variations on permaculture. I think it's, you know, you think about how great it is to eat an apple. You put an apple tree in there; that apple tree goes for years. I mean, that, that's a that's a great part of the landscape. Um, not everything has to be uh, not everything has to be plowed. I'm very interested in those Kernza farmers who are doing that no till project. All right, well, I repeat the title of the book. My husband and I are hoping to be able to start farming the family farm, and this is the type of farming that we are planning. Oh, you guys should read this together. The book is called Wildly Successful Farming, and the way it's written, it's just kind of little case studies every chapter. And so you could just kind of read a chapter a day or a chapter a week together and kind of talk about the example in each. Oh, you should do that. Wildly Successful Farming, and he's going to be at – Majors and Quinn on January 17th at 7. If you want to go meet him, buy the book. Um, all right. I got a question. Uh, oh, somebody's doing prep work to lose weight. Are the veggies from Walmart not healthy? Why is healthy more expensive? Mm, that's a great question. Well, the reason that a lot of healthy things are more expensive is it costs more money to produce them. And because we don't have all of the governmental supports to to create them there's a you know so much money goes into supporting giant crops like corn and no money goes into or almost no money goes into supporting uh, healthy things like broccoli um but you know the veggies from Walmart are are fine and good Walmart has a bunch of you know they're not they're not the evil empire they're fine um treating yourself well is important giving yourself the gift of vegetables is important um Losing weight, I think a few things are – yeah, obviously, that's my opinion. I'm way in here with this. <laughs> a few things are kind of under under uh, reported in, in losing weight. So here's some things. My advice to you, think about adding things like legumes. So I'm talking about beans, cans of beans, uh, 
dry beans. You want to talk about what is inexpensive? Dry beans. You do not have to spend a lot of money to get some dry beans. And if you can work different things like chili and lentil soup, uh, you know, pinto bean soup, any any kind, anytime you can work in legumes and those high fiber things into your diet, and you may say, oh, they make me kind of gassy. Well, that's because you don't eat them much. So if you eat a little bit and then you eat a little bit more and then you slowly can work up to a, to a full serving. But anyway, it, those things are uh, really filling because they're high fiber. They're low glycemic index. So they will slowly release sugar into your blood. So you don't get the big, you know, crashes of like having a can of Mountain Dew. Um, and so I think that we don't talk enough about all of those things. So the the you should really add high fiber things like legumes to your diet if you're trying to lose weight. That is my advice. Everyone kind of skips over them. I don't know why. There's no glamour, no glamour in the beans, but the, that's a good thing. And then um, make sure you're getting, you know, that you're feeling full. Like you can't just sit down and have a, a plate of broccoli. And that's going to lead to success because after a little while, your body's going to be like, whoa, I'm starving. And then you're going to go get a, a Dairy Queen. So try to uh, try to make sure you're eating things like hard-boiled eggs and, and dense foods like that. All right. So what's happening next week? Dr. Michael Roizen is going to have the has a new book, What to Eat When. It's all about using your circadian rhythms to your advantage. He's the guy that invented that uh, – real age diet. So I will see you next week here on Off the Menu. We'll get into all your kind of diet doctor things for January because we love that. All right. See you here next week. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.